Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guests today are Catherine Verhoof-Schauf, Inessa Muratovich, and Moji Swatches. These three strong and determined women are mothers of children on the autism spectrum. Another thing they all have in common is that they are expats living in the Netherlands. Catherine is from the U.S., Anessa is from Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Moji is originally from Nigeria but has also lived in the U.S. and Scotland. Catherine is the founder and owner of Stichting Reach, an autism center in The Hague that applies a multidisciplinary approach based on the principles of applied behavior analysis. Both Anessa's son and Moji's received services there. The Global Autism Project partnered with REACH from 2017 to 2019. We sent five SkillCore volunteer teams to provide hands-on training to their therapists. As the Global Autism Project's regional coordinator in Europe last year, it was exciting for me to witness the center's growth. In today's conversation, our guests discuss the attitudes around autism in the Netherlands compared to those in their respective home countries, the challenges they have faced in accessing proper services, and their ideas on how to promote autism inclusion within their community. Catherine talks about her journey of creating REACH and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected services at the center. Catherine, Anessa, and Moji also comment on how they dealt with managing stress during the quarantine and offer advice for parents to combat burnout. In this episode, discover what's possible when the world says no, but mothers say yes. For more information about our guests, please visit our website, autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Catherine Verhoof-Schauf, Anessa Muratovich, and Moji Swatches. Hi, Catherine, Anessa, and Moji. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Rachel. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having us. Yeah, good to see you all again. It's been almost a year since the last time I visited the Netherlands. Let's just go around and introduce yourselves to our listeners. You can say your name, where you're from, and a little bit about your child with autism. Like, how old he or she is, and what their hobbies and interests are. Anessa, would you like to start us off? Sure. <laughs> so my name is Anessa, and I have a nine-year-old autistic son, Canon. Canon is a bit on the severe side of autism, so he has a lot of trouble with sensory issues. But he's also a very, very happy child. He enjoys, you know, swimming, bouncing off the walls, being on his trampoline, and he can also really show when he's affectionate to somebody. Yeah, so that's that's us. And where are you from, Anessa? We are originally from Bosnia, Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's a very small country on the southeast of Europe, but we live in the Netherlands for eight years now, since 2012, and that means since Canon was eight months old. So basically, he knows the Netherlands as his home. As do we, by the way, because I've got my Dutch nationality. And yeah, so 
so we are officially Dutch now. Great. And Moji, how about you? Where are you from? And tell us a little bit about your child. Yes. So I am originally from Nigeria, but I have dual nationality also. So I have also British citizenship. And I have <laughs> I have a quite unusual background in that um, I spent the first 17 years of my life in Nigeria. And then after that was in the US for university, lived in Scotland, lived in Nigeria again for my husband's job. And I'm now living in the Netherlands with my husband. My husband's Dutch, but we met in Scotland. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're kind of, you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I have a son who has autism, is 13 years old now. And he was diagnosed when he was two and a half. And we sought help for him everywhere we could possibly find help. But he's the light in our lives, and he is a very, very, very happy, happy child. He has his moments, but in general, he's happy. And he loves horse riding. He loves rowing, albeit not him doing the rowing, somebody else rowing him. Um, (laughs) And he likes cycling and a very, very active child, loves being outside in nature and, yeah, just... Just I always say that he just has a good, a good spirit, a good heart. Yeah. So that's that's my Matthew. Yeah. And how long have you been in the Netherlands? So we've been here six years. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And Catherine, tell us about you and Luke. Thanks. First of all, Rachel, I just want to thank you and thank the Global Autism Project for this opportunity, to, this platform to talk about autism and bring awareness about autism to everyone that's listening. About me. Well, I have been living in the Netherlands for almost 10 years now. I am not a citizen. (laughs) I haven't even taken the citizenship test yet. I would like to become, I believe at this point, a citizen of the Netherlands and have dual passports if possible, because uh, this is where we're living and this is where we hope to stay if we can get the right services for our son. I am the Proud mom of a 12-year-old boy with autism. He was diagnosed in the United States. I'm originally from New York. And he was diagnosed when he was two and a half years old with mild autism, or PDD-NOS, they said. And we moved here about a year later to the Netherlands. I moved here. My husband is Dutch. I met him when I worked at the U.S. Embassy. I was the ambassador's executive assistant at the time from 2006 to 2008. And that's where I met my husband. So I'm called a love pat, not an <laughs> And I have to say, between 2006 and 2008, I grew to love and adore this country. I, I, the way of life here was something I totally could relate to. I felt it was home here for me. So when we had Luke and we were thinking about actually living in New York, we've talked about you know that, and I we decided that it was best to come here. So that's what we did. And that's where we are now. So uh, Luke loves lots of things. He's a happy-go-lucky 12-year-old. Now he's a tween. So he's got a bit of a teenage spirit. He's not listening to anything we are (laughs) asking him to do intentionally. And he is a lover of music. He loves to play the piano. And he's learning how to compose 
very simply some music with his music teacher. He loves to walk. He loves to walk in. We have a lot of green area here in The Hague in the Netherlands, and he loves to go to the parks and walk and enjoy the forests as do his dad and I. And yeah, he's the light of our lives. He brings us lots of joy and I would not change him for the world. Nice. Well, I can definitely relate to the excitement and difficulties of living abroad, but I'm not a parent and definitely not a parent of a child with autism. So I can only imagine what kinds of challenges you must have faced along the way. Let's start with how autism is understood in the Netherlands. Would someone like to start this one? I'll be happy to start. Okay. My belief is that there really isn't a lot of understanding of autism here in the Netherlands. That's why uh, we decided to kind of take matters into our own hands and create something so that we could help everyone here to understand our kids. Mm-hmm. I think they understand autism to be classic autism. They don't understand that there is a autism spectrum disorder. I actually even had a psychiatrist say to me that he didn't believe that there was such thing as an autism spectrum disorder, a Dutch psychiatrist. And I pointed out, well, the DSM-5 says differently. And I, I couldn't believe that I was having this discussion with somebody who was supposed to be diagnosing our kids. Mm. So that's, I think, mostly the way it's seen. Just classic autism. They don't believe in the spectrum. And that's my feeling. Anybody else? (laughs) (laughs) I can answer that. I have the feeling that it's quite hard to get services for autism. And it's quite hard to deal with autism in general everywhere. I mean, I think in every country, it's hard to get funding, get services, make people understand. But I don't know, maybe it's because uh, we integrated like really early on when we came here and I speak Dutch from like very early on. I found that I have more understanding here when walking with my son or when he's having trouble in the, um, you know, in the open with, when there's other people than in my own country of origin. Because what tends to happen that in Bosnia, usually I feel very awkward walking with him or taking him to a store or um, going to the swimming pool or, you know, just normal activities that you would do with any child because people are not educated about children being different and not like following all the rules. Uh, Whereas here, I've made the experience that if we go to the pool and uh, I say to the people, well, you know, he has autism, that's why uh, he's screaming. I generally see understanding in other people's eyes. So this is, I'm talking here about situations on the street, you know, in a restaurant, um, in the swimming pool, on the tennis court, wherever. So my experience is a bit different than Catherine's, but on the other hand, she dealt with a lot more than I did. But generally speaking, and what kind of also made me (laughs) take the citizenship (laughs) is uh, one time my worst nightmare uh, kind of became true because Kenan uh, eloped. So he ran away and I didn't know where he was. And whoever has like a child eloping knows the feeling of just pure panic, dread and yeah, just fear. But people were amazing. So there was after everything happened and after we found him, there was this one guy who stopped his car and went to search after him. And then an elderly gentleman helped explain to everybody that probably there's something wrong with this child, you know, and um, 
Yeah, so when you have that happen to you and when you see how people actually want to help and how they react, I found that this is a really good country to be living in. So except for all the part about getting services for your child. <laughs> I see. Yeah. yeah. I, can I just interject a, a bit on that? Mm-hmm. I agree with Vanessa that there are people that absolutely are so understanding, but I always feel like I have to explain And it's almost like 20 years ago in the U.S. And maybe it's because I came from a place like the U.S. where, you know, it seems like everybody knows somebody with autism spectrum disorder. So it's a little bit like wherever we go, whenever I'm back in the U.S., there's always like when Luke's in a CVS and he's looking at the cameras and he's dancing around and, you know, people are always I can tell that they understand why he's doing what he's doing immediately. There is like an instant recognition. Like, you know, I've had people say to me, oh, I have a son that does the same exact thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and that doesn't happen here. I don't really see a lot of kids out and about doing those things in public. And I'm always wondering like, where are these kids? Why aren't they at the grocery store? Why aren't they, you know, in the shops? Like are parents not feeling comfortable bringing them out or, you know, is do they feel that society is not accepting of them? So, you know, that's, you know, just my experience. Mm-hmm. Moji, how about you? What are your experiences, especially compared to all the different countries that you've lived in? Yes. So when Matthew was diagnosed, he was diagnosed when we were living in Nigeria and he was two and a half years old. And in Nigeria, I had to create my own services because, you know, kids like my son are usually hidden and very few people acknowledged even that autism was a thing. And so I had to create my own services there. I sought out the help of a Norwegian psychologist. And so we were up and down in Norway for the first year. And then we sought services also in South Africa. So I've had an opportunity to kind of see services in different places. But I also speak from a position of accessing those services as a private client and not as somebody living in the country, which of course is completely different. So I had fantastic support in the first year when my son was diagnosed, we decamped to Norway for the summer and I spent eight weeks there with my son and my two other children. And we had incredible services there. It was just unbelievable. But again, I was accessing this as a private client. So I don't know if this would have been the norm for people living in Norway. And also in South Africa, same, very good services. And in Nigeria, even though there were no services there, what was great was was that um, in creating my own services, I sought out students from the universities and we proceeded to train them. So we would either bring in experts to train them or we would fly them out with us to go and meet with psychologists that we were seeing to have them trained by the psychologists. So I guess the one positive thing with us when we left Nigeria was, was that We left this group of people who had been well-trained. And then upon leaving Nigeria, we moved to the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, initially, I thought that I had found the right support for my son. But of course, it's very easy to find support for a child when the child is not in the country. So everything looks good. But then when you bring the child in and then you then put the child in the system, you then realize that, oh, the child is struggling to cope with the surroundings it's in, and which is what happened to my son. 
he found it extremely difficult to make this transition from Nigeria to this new place I had found for him. So this was very clear to me right from the first week that he would not be able to go to this school I had found for him. And so then I was left in a position where I had to then seek help. Where could I get autism services? So, you know, I don't know if my experience would have been different if my son had been born here and he had followed, I guess, the the care system in the sense that, you know, for example, in Scotland, kids are assessed every six months and, you know, they have like a way of identifying kids that are struggling and early interventions and things. I don't know if that would have been different if, you know, we had been born here and we had lived here. But certainly coming in as an expat at the time, I didn't know where to turn to. And I found another lady who was the one that kind of guided me through the whole system. And it's basically, and I think that's always the challenge when you move into a new country, that no matter how great the country is, you still kind of almost need somebody to hold your hands and steer you through how the system works. And that took time. And so in that process, I had to create new services for myself in the Netherlands. And so I brought again the lady who had coordinated and ran our program in Nigeria. She was based between the UK and Nigeria at the time. So I flew her back to the Netherlands to set up a new program, a new home program for me. (laughs) And then in the process, I managed to meet other parents who were able to kind of guide me to find a place where I could put my son. I think the problem is, is that services, you know, you have to dig for them. Sometimes it's not very obvious where to look. And even sometimes the experts don't know where to tell you to look. And I think that's probably the frustrating thing. Funding-wise, I think the government has a good heart. But in terms of the services, how, how accessible are those services to parents when they need them? I think that that's probably the most difficult part is trying to find out where to go for those services. And do those services cater to the needs of your child that has autism, because I think what tends to happen is is that sometimes they can group all kids with disabilities on their one roof. And a child with autism has very different needs from a child with Down syndrome or from a child with cerebral palsy, for example. And it's trying to kind of separate that and to be aware of that, that these are all different kind of conditions that need to be treated differently. So I think that's probably one of the issues here when it comes to services that I don't know how easily accessible it is. You know, I think that I have been very fortunate that I have been able to kind of find a way to get access. But I don't know how easy it would be for somebody else, for example, who perhaps doesn't have the time or the energy that I've had to put into it. Mm -hmm. So what services are available from the point of diagnosis? Well, as I said, Luke was diagnosed when he was two and a half in New York, and immediately we were given a list of early intervention organizations that we could choose from that could help us. So that was like such a comfort to me as a parent with a child that has been newly diagnosed. Immediately, you know, the county gave me a coach and, you know, she was helping me through the process. I had a BCBA that had already been working with Luke. I didn't even realize she was a BCBA at the time who put a team together and immediately started 
you know, for six months, he had a group of six people. I met the BCBA every week. We had team meetings each month and it was unbelievable. So when I was leaving to come here, they said, are you sure that there is some good services in the Netherlands? And I said, oh, well, yes, I've spoken to a woman. There's an institute, an ABA institute. So I'm sure, you know, and, and um, that's what I thought. But when I got here, totally different than what I had originally thought. There really wasn't any understanding of applied behavior analysis, which was what Luke was using for the six months, the science of behavior. But he was not communicative. And, you know, in that six months, he was signing for things that he wanted. And before we were getting on the plane, in in the car, he saw a bird and he pointed to it and said, bird. And my mother, I think she was upset that we were leaving, but that really did her in. <laughs> she was, uh, couldn't believe that, you know, he was starting to talk and she was going to miss it. But he, that's, I mean, ABA, I saw how it was helping him. I got in touch with the Institute prior to us getting here. And then when we got here, we went there for an assessment and it was not at all the ABA that was being done with my son in the US. It was a a lot more strict and it was the only person that had any sort of credentials in the country at the time. It's evolved a lot since then. I will say that early intervention is not something that they do or they don't really like to diagnose kids early at an early age, which as you know, is essential to their thriving in the future. So it's very frustrating as a parent and as a person who has started a center to help families to get these children to be diagnosed. And I always tell the parents, the diagnosis is really just a means to funding, you know, but the, they hear, they, they're very, um, they use this word, they, won't, they don't want to put a stamp on that child. But the thing is, the stamp on that child is what's going to fund their success ultimately in the future. And that stamp doesn't need to follow them for the rest of their life. You know, it's not something that, you know, it's stamped on their forehead and that's it. Mm-hmm. So we've been to, Anessa, you, you and I, have, and Rachel, you actually were there. Yeah, We've been to organizations which are supposedly the experts in early intervention and also diagnosing and giving the right tools to uh, help the children get the services that they need. And I didn't hear anything from them that was remotely what I heard from <laughs> the people in the U.S. It, it They kind of like set you up feeling that your child is never going to have a future, you know? So it's very upsetting as a parent because I know that all of our kids have the ability to learn. I know that all of our kids have a future. I know that all of our kids can do the things that neurotypical kids can ultimately do. I know that we should never give up on our kids, but unfortunately in the Netherlands, they believe that you know, they're going to be taken care of ultimately. So why get upset about it now? They'll be fine. The government will take care of them there, you know, and, and that's, that's a really great thing, you know, um, when they're older and that's, it's kind of backwards here. It's like, they don't believe in early intervention until, you know, the age of uh, teenage years, but they have excellent services, teenage years, and, and they have places for the kids to live, which is something that the U.S., you know, is really trying to get. So it's, it's just like the complete opposite. 
mm-hmm. here. It's it's very strange. So I always say to government people when I talk to them, that's not sustainable for you. Like your budgets, you know, like, I mean, we want to be able to give them the help they need so that they can become part of the community, part of society, tax-paying citizens. And they can if you give it, you know, them a chance. So, you know, invest in them early so that they can have a future. And it's hard for them to really grasp that here. And I'm not really sure why. Mm-hmm. Vanessa, do you have something to add? I have a lot to add. <laughs> <laughs> no, because when we came here, Kenan was eight months old, as I mentioned, and he's now nine. So we kind of went through all this process in the Netherlands from the beginning. So I think it would be too much like going to details here about what we went through, but I can just make you know some points. Maybe you could also talk a little bit about what's available in the school system, like what happens there. <laughs> That's a whole nother thing, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't know because my son was never in a school and he's been kind of labeled that he's not fit to function in a classroom. And actually, that's the reason why they sent us away from the last ABA place that we were. So their explanation was after three years of fantastic service for my child, that they think he will never be able to function in a classroom and that they don't know how to proceed with the therapy. And at this point, they feel like they would be torturing him if they tried to make him function in a group and that we should leave. So this is basically what's ended that relationship. Mm. But from the beginning, okay, (laughs) let's start from the beginning. So, well, Kenan has an older brother who didn't talk for a very long time. So I think he spoke his first sentence when he was three. But when Kenan was one and a half, I thought this, this is something different. This is not the same because he's not reacting at all. His brother would react to us, but uh, Kenan wouldn't even react in any way. So I went to my GP and I told her something's wrong. She told me everything's fine. And yeah, so basically here with two kids start like this kind of kindergarten, just socialize. And with four, they start regular school, so regular education. So when Kenan was two, we signed him in into a kindergarten. And in the beginning, I told them, I think something's not right. And if you have a psychologist, I would really like them to look into my son. Because I think something's not right. And to be very honest, I had no idea what autism was. I heard in movies about autism. I had no idea what it was. So I started like like a blank. Well, of course, they told me, you know, back when he was first talking, oh, every mom thinks that of their child. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. But after two weeks, they said, we think something's wrong. We really should get a psychologist to look at him. So we did. And what followed was one year of people coming to our home, people looking at him in the daycare, really people doing everything to avoid actually giving their opinion on what's wrong. And after a year, we had the recommendation to place him in a special child daycare. So they call it daycare for children which means that if a child from two to four is not able to attend the regular kindergarten, they place them into these special daycares. We were presented back then with three options. And again, at that time, I had no idea. I mean, I began to read about autism, but I had no idea what 
therapies there were, I was just thinking, well, we're in the Netherlands. We live in like one of the most advanced, happiest countries in the world. These people know what they're doing. I mean, I don't have to look anything up. I just listen to them and, you know, make everything that they tell me to. So, yeah, we got this after a year of back and forth. We, we got these three recommendations of these, like, daycares, and we went and visited all three of them. And when we were done, I came home and I started crying mm-hmm. because they wanted to place my child with um, my child who is physically very healthy. So he was very hyperactive, constantly running in circles, not communicating, not looking at anybody. They kind of wanted to place him with children who were able to talk, but had severe medical issues and couldn't move and were wheelchair bound. And I looked at them and I thought, this is not right. This is two types of a, a, a totally different problematic. So my child needs somebody to kind of calm him down, put him down and work with him. And these children need something else. So, yeah, that's well, because we didn't have anything else. We placed him in one of those centers. And after he was placed there, they told me, well, you know, don't worry. We have a psychologist. We have a pediatrician. We have a um, like all sorts of professionals who will uh, look at him and then we will give you a diagnosis. So at this point, you're about one and a half year in and still like nothing's happening. He's three at the time and we're just desperate, to be honest. So when we finally like started going there, they told me they need three months to observe him and that we will get a report and uh, like everything will be clear. So of course, in my naivety, I thought that means they will assess him we will get a diagnosis, and then we will get a plan how to treat him. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> After three months, I got a report that basically said, and I think I told this story so many times, it, to me it also seems unbelievable. The first sentences were like, Kenan is a happy three-year-old boy. He has blue eyes, and he didn't. He had green eyes at the time. He dresses nicely. He sits alone in a corner often and he has no eye contact. That was the report after three months. Wow, yeah. And I mean, basically that report could have been written with anybody who had spent a day with him. So from there, I was so desperate. Honestly, I went on Facebook. There was this expert group, well, group of experts. And I just typed in, does anybody here have a child with autism? Because I'm desperate. I don't know what to do anymore. And luckily... This one woman came forward, and I'm to this day so thankful to her. She introduced me to other autism moms, and I started talking to them, and they introduced me to ABA, and then um, with them I went to a conference that Catherine organized about ABA with some Catherine, and it kind of gets the ball rolling, and I started reading myself, and you know, reading so many books and so many articles and everything, and yeah, that's how we ended up at the ABA place I mentioned before which was nice for three years, and then we uh, got sent away. Mm. That's the whole thing, isn't it? That they'll diagnose, ultimately, but there's never a plan. It's like your child, you know, is showing signs of autism. They won't even say autism spectrum disorder. And then they'll say, and so they need to go to a special uh, daycare. That's what they need to do. There's nothing offered as far as treatment. Nothing. Mm. Floor time, ABA, verbal behavior, all of the things that are out there, there's not one of those things is offered to a family. They don't want to offer it. 
And when we asked somebody like, once you diagnose, well, what do you do then? And they were like, well, you know, like they didn't really have an answer. And like, it, it just blew my mind. It's like, this is a place, the Netherlands, nobody in their wildest dreams would have thought would be so backward when it came to something like autism, mm -hmm. when they're so advanced on so many other things. Uh, and it's just, it's amazing to me. And, and it's not just amazing to me and to us as parents of children with autism, many, many different political groups are enraged about this. They want to change it, especially in education. Mm -hmm. because in 2015, the Dutch government decided that it was a good idea to start something called Pas en Onderwijs, which is inclusive education. And it sounds lovely and beautiful. And, you know, we're all singing Kumbaya with inclusive inclusion, inclusion. But the fact of the matter is it's turned this educational system completely over its head and it's exclusive. It's unbelievable. Right now, and uh, well, uh, probably more kids, but according to 2016-2017 uh, stats, 14,417 kids are not in school. 4,000 of them have autism. I mean, this is outrageous. Mm -hmm. It's not just an expat problem that our kids aren't being educated. It's a Dutch problem and a, a serious one. And they, they realize this, but they don't know what to do about it. And to me, it's a very simple thing. Let's invest in a place that has services specifically for, in our case, autism. Because what they do is they have cluster schools for our kids. My son was in one of the cluster schools from four to seven. And it's cluster four. And it's for kids with severe behavior problems. And kids with autism that have an IQ higher than, I think it's 80, and have autism can go to this school. But this means that they are in a school with kids with ADD, emotional problems, abuse problems, autism, you know, and autism, it's not like a one-stop shop thing, as we all know. Our kids have different needs. And my son was a child who was very introverted. He didn't really like aggression. He still doesn't like it. So it was terrifying for him when there was a child lashing out. And then they all also had to learn the same things. So there's no such thing as IEPs here, nothing. They don't believe that there's such a thing as individual education plans. It's not necessary. All kids can learn in a group. They'll learn from each other. They, when they hear something, they'll, and how many times have I heard that? It's like, our kids don't learn from each other like that. It's like, they have a different way of learning. They're not going to just all of a sudden pick up you know, things from another child. I wish that that was the case, but it's not always the case. It, it, it can happen, but it's not always the case. But just to fall back on that always, it, and I still hear it and it makes me crazy. Nobody has experience or a, any sort of certification when working with kids with autism. I made sure I asked that question at the last school and you would think that I was asking, you know, uh, something absolutely insane. But I said, does anybody here, it's a class for kids with autism. Does anybody here have a degree or a certification in behavior analysis or in autism for that matter, by ABA? No, 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 not even a special education degree. So it's like Dutch education is failing kids on the autism spectrum for sure, both Dutch and international kids, but failing special needs, kids with special needs for sure. And, and it's, we are not the only ones that feel this way. It's people are 
completely up in arms. I mean, now there's a group of many parents, these 14,000 kids are home, being homeschooled, most of them, and homeschooling is not even legal here in the Netherlands. So they don't really know what to do. Things have to change and they need to start looking at it in a way that is going to, like I said, invest early, invest now, but invest early so that they can become thriving participants in society ultimately. So I hope that that's the direction and I'm kind of seeing that that might be the direction that they're going. Although, you know, who knows? Yeah. When kind of analyzing these different countries and what attitudes they have about autism and what services they have available. It's interesting also to look at how their professionals are being trained, right? And like you're saying, who has certifications and not? And if they don't, then why? Why aren't they talking about it in university? Why aren't they talking about it in high school or even teaching children what autism is so they can look out for it in their peers? So do you think that there is some kind of stigma about autism or mental health in general? Moji, maybe, do you want to take this one? Yeah, I don't think there's a stigma about mental health here, but I mentioned earlier that I had to set up my own program here. And in doing so, I had some psychology students from the universities here. And for a lot of them, this was their first exposure to a child with autism. And it was not only their first exposure, it was also their first exposure to the therapy we were doing. I haven't studied at the universities here, so I don't know. I don't know what the curriculum entails. I certainly can speak from experience in my short time in Oslo that when I was working with a professor there with my son, that we had two universities. He was the one that actually told me that I should always look for, try to look for university students to keep the costs down because at the time we were funding all this privately. And so he had some of these, he recruited some of the students in his courses to work with my son. And what was interesting was, is that for a lot of them also, this was their first time being around a child with autism, but also it gave them clarity of what they wanted to do and what they did not want to do. And I think that it is important that at some point in time during the educational process, during the university education process, that the students are made to do some kind of internship or some kind of exposure to children from different kind of neuropsychological backgrounds to kind of give an idea and an awareness of what's going on in society and what is out there. Because I think that it's imperative that people are educated about it. And I think that that's one of the best places to be able to do that is at, that, at, this, at this level. And also in terms of what kind of treatment opportunities are out there. I remember that when my son was diagnosed here, I was fortunate because I kind of knew that it was autism. I had unfortunately read a book <laughs> in my book club. And so I had kind of, you know, noted some behaviors from this book that I'd seen in my son. And I had a very good friend of mine who I went to university with in the U.S. who was a pediatrician. And when I said to her that, look, you know, I think that my son might be on the spectrum. Her husband was a Ph.D., I forget, in pediatrics or something. And so they sent me a whole bunch of data and information about different treatment 
options that were available at the time for autism, for early intervention. And so it was based on that data that we were able to narrow down very quickly that ABA would be our best option. And we followed that. And so I'm not saying that the universities should, that the students need to know every single therapy, but at least being aware of it and being able to understand the pros and the cons of each therapy and things would also maybe give a better would negate these issues that Catherine experienced or NSI experienced when your child has been diagnosed and basically that you're told that, oh, you know, okay, well, there's really nothing you can do. When in fact, you know, there are things that you can do to support the child very early on. And I think that a lot of the things that my son is able to do now is because of those very crucial interventions that happened when he was young. Mm-hmm. because the fact that he's able to ride a bike or he's able to do his horse riding or he's able to dress himself is all from that because he had to learn everything. He had to learn how to imitate. He had to learn how to match. He had to learn how to, okay, if I have a shoe and I have just one shoe, I need to find the other pair. These are things that we take for granted that comes naturally to other kids, but these are things that you need to teach a child with autism particularly if they're on the severe side. And it's not that they cannot do it. It's just that their ability to learn is very different. It's very much in small blocks. And if you put those small blocks together, you get a big block. And so it's, it's kind of trying to bring awareness to the medical establishment that this is not impossible. There are success stories out there. There are techniques out there that you can equip parents with that at least, you know, even if they don't have access to the services, they can already start doing with their children at home. Yeah. And I think that that may be lacking. I don't know because, of course, I wasn't here when my son was diagnosed. But if I remember when he was diagnosed, if I had been living here, I probably would not have done anything because you know, the options were not given to me at the time when, when he was diagnosed here, I had to go and look for it. Mm-hmm. I uh, completely agree. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Moji, but it's so important that as a parent, just having the comfort of options is so important. You have to empower us to, to help our kids. We don't know what we're supposed to do. Help us to figure out the best way to help our child. Give us options. I'm not saying solely ABA, but certainly evidence-based options that are out there and should be available to every family. And that's something that they do not do here. They don't give you options. It's just, this is the way it is. You know, just you're going to have to accept your child has autism and everyone will be happy. And that's, you know, not true. (laughs) Yes, we have to accept our child has autism, but there are ways to help them. And the way are ways to help us as parents and empower us as parents. I would like also to just share a story on this matter because from this first like child care center, when we went there, my son was here from his third to his fourth year. And when I asked them about toilet training, they told me, well, you know, he's autistic. Maybe he will pick it up from the other kids that are already doing it. But, you know, even if he's never toilet trained, the cost of diapers are paid by the government. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, now when I look like 
back on that. Yeah. Oh my God. But then we went to this ABA place and Kevin had a fantastic therapist there. And she told me after maybe a couple of months that he was in this place, you know, you could toilet train him. And I told her, but, you know, he's not ready. You know, it's just, it's too difficult. He doesn't understand. And she told me, well, I think he can. And if you are on board, we can start the training. And that was just amazing. Because as parents, you kind of, you get into this routine and you think this is all there is. And you sometimes really need the therapist on your side to just tell you, your child can do this. It's just, we need to put in a little bit more effort, but I believe we can do this. And she was right. I mean, he did it. <laughs> and quite quickly also. Exactly. Yeah. I think what I miss a lot is, and I don't know if maybe I haven't, yeah, I, I don't know if I've, I haven't been exposed to that as much, but I remember that in Norway, we were working with a psychologist and the psychologist, he basically worked with Dr. Eva Luvas, who was the person that puts, first of all, first put together this program ABA or coined the phrase ABA. And he was one of his PhD students. And what was always very fascinating to me was, was that he always said to me that at the time, because I asked him at the time about toilet training, and he said, I wouldn't worry about that now because we have other things that we need to kind of teach Matthew, but don't worry because he will get toilet trained. You know, a lot of these kids can be toilet trained. And I think that knowing that and seeing this professional tell me that, I guess, made me believe that even when we were struggling through it, that it was possible and that it was just about finding different ways, finding different approaches to support and to help. And I think that sometimes that's what I sometimes miss here is that steer and that belief in your child and your child's ability and that, you know, our kids may not be able to learn something now, but it doesn't mean that they can never learn it. It doesn't mean that in five years' time or in two years' time, that they cannot do that. And I think that maybe that thought process needs to maybe change a little bit so such that there isn't a, yeah, it's not easy to potty train a child. Even a neurotypical child, it's not easy. But it's particularly more challenging for a child with autism. And I think one of the things that NSS said that really caught my attention was, was that she said she was told that maybe he can learn if he sees another child do it. But one of the difficult things for a child with autism is imitation. Yes. And so you need to teach imitation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If a child doesn't know how to imitate, how is a child able to learn from their peers? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a very basic developmental milestone. That's how we learn. We learn by looking at others. And so if you're not able to kind of you know, help this child right from the beginning to learn this core skill, then everything else that goes after that is never going to happen. Right. And so, yeah, I, you know, I don't know, you know, and I think maybe because I've always found my way, I've just tried to just, you know, some things become normalized to you and perhaps maybe they're not supposed to be normalized. I think they're probably, that's not the way it should be. But I guess, I think as parents, you just pick up and you go and you just pick up the next battle and you forget the other ones. And then you just say, okay, you know, that one says no, I'll try the next one. 
you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's the challenge here. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if you've listened to the episode with Cassie. Cassie is our director of outreach, and she talks about the importance of empowering parents to empower their children. Like they're kind of kids, your children's ages, like teenagers, to become self-advocates in their communities, because that's really the key to outreach. Like locals, like people, members of the community need to be hearing from the voices of people with autism. Mm -hmm. Parents are great advocates, of course, and so are teachers, therapists, all of the allies. But really, for people to understand what autism is, they have to see it. They have to hear it. And they, you know, as your kids get older and have their own voices and ways to impact their communities, I think that's really key in this whole process. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So it's just something to start thinking about now because they're at that age. Yeah, no, I think I think I realize that now more so with my son, who's like 13, that, you know, before he was still kind of like little Matthew, you know, he's small, he's, and now he's at this age where he's older. And of course he is, you know, his developmental age doesn't match his physical age. And it's trying to kind of, get people to understand that this is what autism is actually for a lot of children. Mm. I think that because also our children don't necessarily show physical disabilities, it can be very challenging Mm -hmm. because you see a child that looks, yeah, neurotypical from the outside, but inside there are all sorts of developmental issues going on that people don't necessarily compared to the two, you know? And that's why I think Catherine mentioned it's about the fact that when you see more examples of kids like this around you, you are better educated about what autism is. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling though, Moji, that a lot of these kids are locked away. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever I go with Kenan, I get the question, is he still living at home? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Of course he's living at home. What do you mean? What else is there? So I have the feeling that it's quite normal here to kind of put them away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what I meant by, you know, being in the U.S. and going to CVS and somebody saying to me, oh, I have a child just like that. Like they, they got it immediately. But like here they see Luke doing the camera thing. He loves to go in front of cameras and like watch himself. They just like everyone's staring at him. And I'm always saying like, oh, he's got something called autism, you know, mm-hmm. like I, this is autism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are like, mm-hmm. like they don't really. There's a part of me that thinks ignorance is bliss. I don't speak Dutch very well. So they could be saying horrible things about my son. And I just I don't understand it, which I feel good about because I kind of live in Luke's world when it comes to comments, because I don't understand. So I'm like, okay, bye. You know, (laughs) meanwhile, they might be saying like, he needs to go to an institution or jail, or I don't know what they're going to, you know, like Mm -hmm. a sane asylum. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. It used to bother me, the looks. Now I don't care. You know, now I'm just like, it's something called autism. And he's a happy kid. And he just is looking at himself, you know, and that's what they do sometimes, you know, because I just feel like people need just to hear the word. It's not a terrible word. It's not like, it's not going to hurt you. I think they think they can catch it or something. I don't know. Yeah. And sorry, Rachel, I think you said something about, you know, our kids need to be our voices, but that's not always possible. 
in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, when I spoke to the Norwegian psychologist, one of the things that he did say to me is, is that actually, and also when I was, um, I don't know if you know an institute called INSAR, the Institute of Autism Research. It's a big organization that brings together researchers and medical professionals from around the world to look at autism. When I was at the conference, I did raise this issue that, look, you know, a lot of our kids actually, you know, it's a very small proportion when you look at autism globally that actually end up in a spectrum where they're able to kind of be verbal yeah, and be able to communicate their feelings and their issues and in a way that is articulate enough for a world to hear it. Yeah, And so in a lot of cases, we as parents and the, the psychologists and the people that work with our children still need to be the advocates for our children, still need to be the voices for our kids. However, I think what would help, like I said, is for people to see our kids in the community, to see our kids, you know, walking around and being able to accept that and to be being able to, to say that, okay, this is autism, but, but that's also autism. And being able to understand those differences and being able to kind of live with those differences as opposed to looking at us, our children as freaks of nature, yeah. you know, which is what I sometimes often get. And I always say that as a parent of a child with autism, you have to have a Teflon skin <laughs> so that nothing can stick on you. <laughs> because because. and that's not something that you like in the beginning you realize because it's like oh my god somebody's staring at my child with like a face of disgust my beautiful baby like you want to like mama bear them you know but now it's just like you do you have to have like you know okay that's your problem not his you know yeah Mm -hmm. and that's what what a beautiful thing about autism is that they don't see the hate they don't see the disgust they don't see people like they don't hear the bad comments they they just live their lives in a beautiful place and I Mm -hmm. I wish I could live that life sometimes you know I wish I didn't have to be the person hearing these yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah okay I think this might be a good time to transition topics so Catherine you're the founder and owner of reach an autism center in the Hague Could you share your story of how you started the center and what services you offer families now? Okay, REACH. Why we started REACH? Well, I started REACH in April of 2016, which was actually on World Autism Awareness Day, April 2016, because my husband and I both saw that there was a definite need for an affordable ABA based or evidence based center that worked with children on the autism spectrum disorder, especially the English speaking children, as there was really nothing available for them. There is one educational option for kids with special needs in English. However, it's uh, unaffordable for many families like my husband and I. So we realized we needed to develop something that was affordable for families that was going to be a place where our kids were understood where they could thrive and not just survive. So I opened Reach. I wanted to open it uh, later, but because I really wasn't ready in April, 2016. But as it turns out, my son, who was in a Dutch school at the time, 
it wasn't working for him. He wasn't able to functionally speak in either Dutch or in English. He was having tremendous difficulties. So we saw that we, we needed to do something to help him. We saw that English was the language that he was uh, drawn to, that he was able to speak better than Dutch. So we realized we needed to create something. And as Anessa and Moji uh, know, and as any parent of a child with autism knows, sometimes you need to take matters into your own hands and create something that's going to work for your child. So that's what we did. So we decided to create a center. It's a nonprofit center. We rented a little annex from a Dutch organization. We started with two kids and uh, now we have 16 kids, soon to be 20. We started with four therapists and now we have uh, 15 therapists four BCBAs, board certified behavior analysts from all over the world. We have therapists who have their masters in psychology or in ABA, but they also have their registered behavior technician certifications. And if they don't have it, they are awaiting their certification or taking the course. We want everybody at REACH to be highly qualified and certified. We not only want them to be qualified on paper, but every single person that works at REACH is somebody who has a passion for helping our kids and helping them to succeed. And they are truly just a, an incredible group of individuals that I cannot say enough about. We truly are so lucky and blessed to have such incredible people working with us. And I'd like to continue this as we grow to remain the family that we are. And they all really are about teaching each other and working with each other and educating each other on how to help each other help our kids. So it's truly a great and incredible group of people. We also have now occupational therapist and a speech therapist, speech and language therapist, and we also have somebody who works with our kids with music, and she's actually getting her music therapy degree as well. So we really are expanding. And what ultimately we'd like REACH to be, which it is not quite yet, we're still at the beginning stages, it's been four years, but we would like REACH to be a place where our kids, all kids, Dutch and international kids, can go from age two to 22, sort of a one-stop shop for the services and resources they need for everything in their lives and to help them thrive and be thriving members of the community and ultimate taxpaying citizens in society. So that's what we're really hoping uh, and, and wanting to happen for REACH. We actually achieved something pretty unprecedented. We now have a contract with the city of The Hague and also with the nine surrounding cities. So now we can really offer services to so many more children and services to families to help their kids grow and, and to become the best that they can be to reach their full potential. And that really is what REACH is all about. We are there to help families reach their full and our kids to reach their full potential. 
Well done to you and your team, Catherine. I know how hard you've worked for that contract, and that's a huge accomplishment. So, Anessa and Moji, your sons are both attending REACH also? Yes. Okay, got it. But only on a short term. They are only there on a, a couple of days for a couple of like hours, not even a couple, like one hour, one day. So we want to be able to offer more time for them so that they have a place to go until they're 22 or however old where they can continue to thrive. Yeah. And how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the services at the center? Once it became apparent that there was going to be a lockdown here in the Netherlands that schools were going to close, uh, it was in March, Due to COVID, I called a meeting of our BCBAs at REACH, REACH BCBAs, to discuss the plan of action. This was not something that any of us had ever, just like all of you, encountered. So we really needed to kind of put our heads together to figure out what was the best course of action. So what we decided to do was we created a parent resource folder and we put in there everything that we thought the parents would need during this lockdown period to best help their child. It was stuck full of resources and information and different things about COVID, ways to tell your child about COVID, washing your hands, demonstrations of washing your hands, all sorts of free resources that also were available during this lockdown period, which were fantastic. So we really put tons of information into this parent folder and sent it out to them as soon as the lockdown period started, which, as I said, was in March. We also put together a video for structuring your home program so that parents understood how important it was to get a structure going for their child, because that was the only way that any of us would be able to survive this uh, pandemic, this lockdown period. Our children need, as you all know, they need structure and routine. So it was important that that was continued as soon as they were home. So we created a video talking about how to make that happen and how to structure it. And that was sent to the parents. We offer telehealth services. So any of the kids that were able to do sessions online, some of our older clients, that was offered. And I have to hand it to my team. This was not something that they had ever done before. And just from my own experience with my son, they did such an incredible job in making the telehealth, the the sessions very engaging. It was really interesting for me because it had been a while since I worked with my son like this. And it really brought me back to the days when we first started working ABA at home. And it was a good training experience for me. And it also helped me to understand where my son was, you know, academically, where he was in development. And I was just, I must say, so surprised and not surprised, but just so proud of him. He really handled himself so incredibly well during this time. And I learned so much and my husband did too. We all were part of the program. It was exhausting and it made me understand how difficult the job of a therapist and a teacher really is, but it was amazing to be a part of that. We also, I also sent messages or emails to the parents on a weekly basis, just checking in with them to see how they were doing. 
Unfortunately, I'm sure as you all felt, they were very overwhelmed at first. So it took a while for parents to engage. I didn't want to put too much pressure on them to engage because I know everybody handles things differently, but it was important that we tried to keep a connection with them. Uh, I didn't want our parents to feel isolated at all. We also, as a team, met weekly and had uh, game and game video chats and did uh, fun things, uh, happy hours on Fridays. And we all had to be connected as well because we were all isolated. And many of our, all most, most of our uh, therapists are from other places. So, you know, they couldn't go and see their families either. And it was hard for them to be far away from their families. So we were able to keep our family together here in the Netherlands through these uh, video chats. So that was really great for the team. And also we offered parent trainings as, as well to our families, mostly for the parents whose child wasn't able to do the sessions online, which really was incredibly helpful for many of our parents. And also our BCBAs kept in touch with the parents just to check in with them to see how they were doing on a weekly basis. So we really did try and make sure that we had continued the connection. And we did that up until May when we were able to open gradually again. Uh, and what we did was in the beginning, just have the kids who weren't able to do telehealth sessions back at the center. And it was just one therapist to one child and nobody else was uh, allowed to be in the room. And after all of this, we used this as a learning opportunity as well. We sent a survey to the team to see how they felt we communicated the guidelines and everything to them uh, and if they felt supported. And we also sent that to the parents and asked them, you know, what did they use as far as the resources that we uh, sent them? What would they like to see if God forbid this happens again. What would they like to see done differently? Um, so it really has been a learning opportunity for us at REACH. And we have learned a lot. And we learned that some of the parents did feel a bit isolated. So we want to make sure that we have an ongoing dialogue with them, a parent coffee hour. So we're doing things even post-lockdown period for the parents. And so it, it's been... Um, a learning experience for all of us. Anessa, what was that period like for you? I would rather not think about that period. <laughs> no, it was a very, very, very hard beginning of the, when the crisis started. And it was basically overnight. Um, we had to stay home all the time. I think my son was very confused because he's very energetic. I think at some point he, he has also some mix of hyperactivity in all his diagnoses. So he's a very active child and he had had this amazing routine uh, of going to these centers, which he really loved, and that stopped. So I think the first week he was kind of cool with it because he didn't know what was going on. And then the second week, he started having meltdowns. So whenever we would come back home from anywhere, basically the lucky thing that was for us that in the Netherlands, there was not a total lockdown. So you could still actually go with your children outside, you know, as long as you kept distance, of course, and as long as um, you would wash hands and take all the precautions. So that was lucky for us that we could go outside with him at least to playgrounds. But the second and third week were really awful. I mean, I was at the verge of crying 
almost all the time because he was just having meltdown after meltdown. And actually, it hit me so hard because my neighbors, and we have kind of joint houses here, and my neighbors also had their kids home, but you would, and, and it was warm, so all of us had our doors always, and our, uh, we were always in the garden, everybody. And you would just hear your neighbors kind of, you know, singing and talking to their kids and having fun. And it was so nice to hear and eavesdrop there. Whereas in our house, you would hear a constant screaming, hitting doors, hitting himself. And he's never done that. He was never aggressive. So it was a really, really hard period. And at that point, we started having also some like guidance sessions with Reach. So I had uh, help of his um, favorite two therapists, you know, kind of uh, in actually managing those meltdowns. So they came up with a couple of ideas what to try and how to prepare Canon for the transition, for coming home, for going outside. So that helped really a lot. It gave me a sense of being in control because before of that, I really, I lost all sense of any kind of control. I was just dealing with this hot mess of a child. Whereas my neighbors, they were always laughing and cutting hair in the garden. You know? When I think about it now, I, I was just depressed and I was probably um, feeling like a failure. And well, if my child behaves for the therapist at these places that he usually goes to, why doesn't he behave that way home with me? I must be failing somewhere. I'm not a good mom. And there are other nice thoughts, you know, and nice things you tell yourself when you're not in a great place. Anyways, I had really great support from a, a reach therapist, and they came up with ideas, and they came even up with more ideas than I could manage to implement. <laughs> and eventually, yes, my son did calm down, and then, um, yeah, we had this program when I was with him at home, and as Catherine said, um, it kind of reminded me of the first days when I was the one constantly working with him and trying to teach him stuff. Um, so all in all, the last couple of weeks of the, I don't know, how long was the whole lockdown? March 15th to May 15th. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so two months. Yeah. So for the last two, three weeks, it was really, um, it was okay. I mean, we've managed. And then the Netherlands opened up the system uh, step by step. Um, also, my son could actually get used to the old ways, uh, like step by step. So he would go like one day to one center and one day to the other. And it was all in all a really good experience when it all started working again. <laughs> <laughs> Moji, what was that transition to home services like for you? Like Anessa, it was really, really from Friday. He went to school Monday there was no school. <laughs> and so for my son, the first day he thought, okay, maybe it's a long weekend. <laughs> and then Tuesday, okay, maybe it's a longer weekend. And then by Wednesday, he was thinking, well, this is not looking right. And so I said to bring out some of my old programs that I used to do with Matthew when we had home programs, trying to kind of build some structure into his day. And we just, you know, I would do a lot of outdoor stuff with him because that was what he enjoyed doing a lot. So we would do lots of cycles and things. So the first week or so was okay, first two weeks. But then my husband got sick and we were not sure what it was. And so we all had to self-isolate for 14 days. 
So we couldn't leave the house for 14 days. Wow. <laughs> so that was hard. That was, that was really hard. That was, that was some of the most difficult moments of my life. And, mm-hmm. and trying to explain to my son who could not really understand why he could not see his dad, even though his dad was in the same house because we had to isolate him because we didn't know what it was and they were not testing at the time. So we didn't want to take any risks or any chances. And so it was tough. And we, we got through those two weeks of isolation and then we started to go out again. But by and large, you know, I think what was positive for my son was, was that his other two siblings were at home with him and he really enjoyed their company. And we were also very fortunate that the weather was nice during that period. So he could be outside in the garden quite a bit. And so in general, you know, bar those two weeks where we had to quarantine, the period was okay. But getting towards the end, he was he was losing the plots because he was just like, this is just monotonous every single day. And you could go out But at the same time, you didn't want to go out too far from the house. So you were really literally doing the same thing every day. And so it was a relief when we could all start to go back into some form of normality in May. And I thought it was very well done again because it was a very gradual kind of transition. And initially, of course, there's anxiety because you're thinking, oh, okay, well, there's all these other kids. But I have to say that. My son goes to reach, but he also goes to another center. That's where he is primarily most of the time. And they did a fantastic job in communicating what their COVID protocols were and how they intended to keep the kids safe and and what they plan to do with them in terms of all the precautions necessary to try to minimize any form of transmission. So that was really good. But now we're kind of, yeah, I think we're back to normal. Yeah, what is the situation like in the Netherlands? The schools are open 100%? Schools are open 100%, yes. My kids are going to school every day. Schools are open. There seems to be some escalation as far as cases, and there's escalation here in The Hague, apparently. But they're very good about letting everybody know this and, you know, what the steps are, if there are other steps that need to be taken. The prime minister has press conferences uh, and lets everybody know what those steps are. At REACH, we also have guidelines uh, as to when we opened up what we would be doing that we sent to parents and also the therapists have to follow. And they need to disinfect every time there's a a session. After each session, they need to sign a sheet. Therapists need to, and the kids need to wash their hands when they come in and when they leave or use... um, if the kids can tolerate it, the hand uh, sanitizer or the hand sanitizing wipes and uh, things like this, you you learn a lot. That's for sure, especially as a business owner. I mean, I will say that on our risk assessment that we did, <laughs> never was there any like <laughs> close to a pandemic being on the risk assessment as a possible problem. It is now. I'll tell you that it is now. <laughs> You know, who in your in, in any person's wildest dreams would have thought that this would have happened. But now we are prepared for, God forbid, anything else like this happening mm-hmm. to us. And uh, hopefully we'll never have a situation again where parents whose kids are not doing telehealth are going to feel isolated. That's the last thing I ever wanted for our parents. 
I really want them to know as a parent of a child with autism, that they're not alone, that I'm here and other parents are here. So we want to make sure that we get a network of parents together if there's ever an issue like this, or even always, you know, it's important that parents feel the support from each other. Mm -hmm. Yes, supporting each other in difficult times, but also supporting each other in advocating for your kids' needs to the school districts or to the government. And you know, Catherine, how it started in the U.S., it was a parents' movement. And so it takes getting to the streets and speaking up and knocking on doors and and not giving up. So I hear you. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say, like, in my life, I did a lot of things. And I never really understood what all those things meant when I was doing them and how they all kind of came together. But I did fundraising. I was a prosecutor. I worked in the district attorney's office in Brooklyn for special programs. So we had a think tank of people together working on, you know, being smart on crime and crime prevention programs. And we started them from like just ideas. And I see how all of those things in my life made this a reality. And I'm a believer in never giving up and I will never give up for my child. And I could have packed up a a long time ago and moved right back to the US where I knew my child was gonna get services. But what about all the other kids that need services and need help and need to be educated. It's important that I use my abilities to be able to get that not only for my son, but for all these other families that are here. And the Netherlands is a fantastic place to live. I I love everything about living here, except for services and education. (laughs) And if we can get that straight, it'll be a perfect place to live. (laughs) but I don't want everyone living here. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I mean, if we can make that happen, then this is going to be like an ideal place to be. And I would love to share it with as many families uh, as we can. I was just kidding about that. Um, So I do want to make a place big enough so that we can have anybody who's interested in moving here, if they, if they can get here and live here, to be here and to get the best for their kids. Mm-hmm. All right, ladies, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other parents who may be struggling during this time? Whether it's questioning if it's safe to send their kids back to school or they might be feeling burnt out from having the kids home all the time. Well, I think to deny that it's a difficult period or to deny yourself from feeling bad, I think it's also not right. I think that we all need to go through a process. I think it's like when my son was diagnosed, I said to somebody that I grieved and I mourned. And they said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, because I mourned what I could not have, because I had this dream of what I would do with my child and what my child would be. But that process was necessary to allow me to kind of accept my son for who he is. And I think that in this period also, that of course there's going to be challenges. And so what I would say is is that it's so important to take time for yourself. And if that means, I I started taking up running. So I would run sometimes three, four, five kilometers in the mornings. And that was, it was only 20, 20 minutes, half an hour of my day. 
but it allowed me to just be away and just rethink and just refocus on other things and come back and start my day with a fresh mind. So I don't know what it is for other parents, what that may be. It may be maybe doing yoga or I don't know what it is, but I think it's so important that no matter how small the time is, that you try to also take time for yourself and to switch off and to do something that you really enjoy doing and to do that every day, even if it's just for 10, 15 minutes, because then at least you feel like you have spent time for yourself and with yourself. I think that's, that's the advice I would give. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, um, yeah, that, uh, the first thing that uh, like popped into my mind about this question is that uh, you need to, to take care of yourself. I mean, you just, you cannot pour from an empty cup. And that somebody, somebody told me this like a long time ago, and it's the best thing I have ever heard because you really cannot take care of your children and especially not of your special needs children if you are just, yeah, at your wit's end and feeling just, you know, overwhelmed. But that said, it's also very important to let yourself feel the feelings that you have. So whether it's just being very tired, devastated, <laughs> depressed, anything, what helped me through the, the, the very difficult weeks uh, was kind of allowing myself when I felt down to say to like have an inner monologue and tell myself, well, yeah, that you feel like crap. This is it. That's that's how you feel right now, and that's okay. You may feel like this for this, you know one hour or today or even tomorrow, but then afterwards you're going to pick yourself up, you're going to take a long, hot shower, you're going for a walk, and then you'll feel better. So that was kind of my strategy with coping. Because our kids are so perceptive of everything that goes uh, you know, inside of us, I think they really feel also our nervousness, uh, pressure, you know, depression but they also feel our happy thoughts and like when we are in a good place at least my child does my god he really reacts when i'm upset Mm -hmm. Uh, but he also reacts when i come from um, a more quiet and um, a place of just happiness or inner happiness so but yeah it's it's okay to feel um, i think that's that's the most important thing i learned uh, it's okay to feel bad Mm-hmm. Sorry, Rachel. I just realized that it was a two-part question, and the second part was about what advice for parents who um, about sending their kids back to school. And I think that it's a very personal decision. I think that you need to understand, you know, what you know. I felt comfortable enough with the precautions that my son's center had taken, and also with what Reach had taken. And I think what I would just say is, is that you know ask the questions that you may have in terms of what are they doing and how comfortable you feel with all the interventions that they have put in place to protect each child. But I think it's a very personal decision. And I cannot say to anyone, well, if they've done all these things, then just put your child there. I think that each one of us has different risk values and different vulnerabilities in our lives. And so I think maybe just asking the questions and if those questions lessen the anxiety for you, then fine. But I think it's very personal. And I think it also helps if you have somebody else to discuss it with. 
who is a bit more rational. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Catherine? I honestly can't add to anything that Moji and Anessa said. I agree with them 100%. It's important to take care of yourself, even if it's just getting out of the house and walking around the block. I mean, I can't even tell you how walks have saved me <laughs> on days where I thought I was never going to get through it. And so that was my way of escaping whatever the situation was, uh, certainly during the lockdown period and, and still to this day. I also think you need to go with your instincts. As parents, that is the most important thing that we have. Always believe in it. Believe in your instincts. Believe in yourself and believe in your parenting skills because you know what's best for your child. So you need to follow your instincts with everything always feel that you can advocate for your child and never, ever give up. Never give up. Our kids need you. I know my son needs me. And I also agree with Anessa. He knows when I'm feeling uptight, for sure. And if I'm upset, forget it. But it's really important to just always try and stay positive and never give up and always advocate for your child. And don't let people tell you no. The answer is yes. (laughs) you can get what you want. It's just, you have to fight for it. Unfortunately, that's the way it is. No matter where you are in any part of the world, that's the reality. No place is perfect. So you're going to have to fight for what your child needs and you will get it if you fight hard enough and never give up. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all so much for sharing your stories with us and congratulations again on all your growth and accomplishments at REACH. You're really serving so many families in the community. And it's just the beginning, if you think about it, you know, there's so many more years ahead and so many more kids that you can impact. So I'm so happy for all of you. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much for everything that you do as well. Thank you, Rachel. So please continue to spread awareness and inclusion in the Netherlands. We will. And I hope we can see each other again someday soon. We will. We're a force to be reckoned with. Right, ladies? (laughs) Of course we are. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I can only imagine what it must feel like to be repeatedly told that there's no place for your child to learn, that no one is equipped to teach them, and that their skills will always be limited. Catherine, Anessa, and Moji's steadfast perseverance is truly inspiring. For clinicians, one part of the job that can sometimes get overlooked is the direct support system that we can be for parents. A few words of encouragement can go a long way. Just letting them know that we believe in their child's ability to learn can turn a rough day around. To all the moms and dads out there, you are doing an amazing job. You are your child's number one supporter. Your efforts to fight for access to services and quality education are creating possibilities for your children, and all children with autism, to thrive. And, as we always say, you are not alone. If you've found value in this episode, there's one way you can help support our mission. It's completely free and will only take you a few seconds. Please share this podcast with one person who you think will find value in it too. As a reminder, all of our full-length interviews are available on our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast to stay updated on featured content.
Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.